Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Lab at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bismuth and I'm a communicator here at the Cavendish. Hi, I'm Paolo Molignini and I'm a postdoc in theoretical physics here at the Cavendish. Our guest this month is Louise Hurst, Assistant Professor of Physics and Specialist of the Development of Advanced High-Efficiency Photovoltaics for Space Applications like Powering Satellites and Exploring Space. As a teenager and young adult, she contemplated a dual career in music and science, but knew she could not do both, so finally decided to push her physics studies with the idea that she could get into finance or banking. Today, she's not working in the city, but continues to play the trumpet and piano when she's not manipulating materials in the lab. She spent several years at the Naval Research Lab in Washington, D.C., where she did her postdoc. The lab brings together civilians and military stuff, an environment she found both intellectually stimulating and challenging. Louise Hurst is not easily impressionable and certainly not easily discouraged. But is it a natural trait or did she have to build her confidence the hard way? We'll ask her and more in this episode. Stay with us. Welcome, Louise. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Louise, when did you realize physics is what you really wanted to pursue as a career? I think it would be during my undergraduate studies, but later on, so around about the third year, where we we started doing a lot more project work, um, things that were applied, and uh, my third year undergraduate project was um, looking at the absorption coefficient in germanium, which is uh, has a, an absorption coefficient that uh, uh, cuts off in the near-infrared. Um, and uh, the, the process of um, trying to obtain my own data and analyze that and compare it against literature and the way that it had been done previously, I found that to be really exciting. And thinking about the applications for this data um, was, was something that I, I, I thought I thought was it was a really fun, fun thing. So um, that that kind of got me more enthused um, about the idea. I would say of, of technology development certainly, and so staying on, I guess, in academia in physics for a bit longer and seeing where that would take me. So at some point you were hesitating between music and physics, weren't you? And uh, you also saw that um, physics could be a means to open more doors and going towards finance. Or, or banking. So when when did you start to realize, no, physics is really what I want to do, and then you pushed more to decide the other projects? I think it's probably quite a, a common feeling for young people, um, not knowing what you want to do, and in fact, even for people who are a little bit more mature, even not knowing exactly what you want to do. Um, but uh, thinking that I had a few skills and a few places and things that I love doing, which include, included music. And, um, and um, I was aware, though, that practically speaking, I needed to have a, a job in mind and something that would earn me a living as well as just something that I love doing. 
Uh, and so that's why I decided to, I guess, study physics at an undergraduate level uh, and, and focus in that area. I knew that there were jobs and careers in, in other areas than physics that I could then move on to uh, with a physics undergraduate degree. And, and that's very common. And certainly banking and finance was something um, that I knew many people who had gone on to do that from a physics uh, degree. Um, I started my undergraduate in around 2004. Um, and... I guess the whole world's perspective maybe was a little bit different <laughs> as to what finance and banking was then. By the time I was graduating, that was 2007, um, with the, the, the banking crisis of 2007. And so the whole picture looked a little bit different by that point. We'd seen behind the curtain um, of banking and finance as perhaps a, a slightly more ugly side. And a lot of people were suffering because of because of the actions uh, of, of individuals in that sector. And... Um, it looked much less attractive as a career by that point, certainly. Uh, and simultaneously, I was really enjoying physics at that point as well, enjoying the project aspects, the applied aspects. And so I definitely knew something in, in technology development was was for me, I think, by that point. Or certainly I wanted to pursue it further as a study at that point, which led me on to doing a master's degree in the, and then PhD. So the year is 2007. Um, you start your PhD at Imperial. And you begin working on photovoltaics, which will then become your main field of research. Um, what are they and what are they interesting? So I did do a master's in between there, but um, certainly um, the um, at the time, again, it was it was very different. Um, what the field of photovoltaics looked like then as to what it looks like now, it was much less of a kind of uh, a set technology that was was going to be the answer. Now we're in a situation a decade later, or even more, uh, where we um, we know that uh, silicon-based technologies are going to be much more um, a they're going to be providing what we need in terms of um, power for for renewables at a utility scale. Um, back then, that was a much less clear picture. So there was a lot more R and D for utility scale. Um, photovoltaics um, and that was what I wanted to be a part of understanding that understanding where new things could come from there was a big focus on things like um, concentrated photovoltaics that was something that was really on the up at that point um, so that's for uh, photovoltaics for big power stations in the desert for example where you'd have a huge number of mirrors focusing light down to one tiny point um, and so the types of materials that I was studying at the time um, were appropriate for that type of application. Um, of course, there's so much that goes into the path of technology development. It's not just about something that has got great potential. Um, it's about the timing. It's about uh, the existing sectors and manufacturing processes and all these kinds of things. And all of those things did feed into the success of silicon as a flat plate design, which is a little bit different to what I studied for my PhD, uh, as becoming really what we call them the mainstream now uh, that we see on people's rooftops, for example. Um, but just because those technologies, the intended application at that time didn't end up being the successful uh, technology yet, I would say, <laughs> it's not like it's all a done deal. Um, we obviously have continuing needs into the future. Um, 
there's so many things that I, I yielded from the materials development, from the, the study at the time. And actually, there's other areas now where we're, we're really using those materials, for example, the space power applications, which is one of the, the main focuses of my current research. Yeah, so I was about to ask, what, what, what are they, um, these technologies useful for? And that's really these um, space applications, for example, but also all these um, areas of everyday life. Um, can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, certainly. So just to break down a little bit about the, the different types of technology you'd need for, for different applications. As I mentioned, flat plate silicon being the one that really dominates now um, for utility scale and domestic uh, power generation. Um, but there's a whole host of other things that we need power generation for, powering satellites being one of those. They have different needs to the domestic scale. Um, we need something that's lightweight. We are slightly less co concerned about cost. When we're talking about domestic power generation, cost is everything, as I think everyone is currently really appreciating with the price of uh, power bills. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, your price point is, is really everything. Um, but when for space applications, we're a bit more resilient to cost uh, because there's so much cost in, embedded in, in the cost of launching uh, our vehicle. Really, we want the thing that's the best, the most reliable. And, and one of the things as well is low mass um, and radiation resilience. These are things that we care about for space, but not really for, for domestic um, utility scale. Uh, but in terms of terrestrial applications, there's other, other places where we need different technologies too. For example, integration with systems. Think about integration of, uh, on electric vehicles or the aerofoil of um, a, a plane or a UAV or something like that. Um, these are all places where we would want uh, power generation remotely. And if you imagine sort of a, a relatively heavy, rigid uh, square silicon panel, the type we see in people's roofs, that would be obviously totally inappropriate for integration onto the roof of a car. Um, so we need technologies that can fit fit that application as, as well. So after your PhD, you decide to embark in a project at the United States Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, D.C., where civilians work alongside military personnel so what was your experience there like? Naval Research Lab is an incredible place. It really is. It's, it's got um, uh, equipment that you could never dream of really having in a university. For example, the, the, the giant um, uh, vacuum chamber that's uh, heated, it's known as Big Blue, uh, heated to super high temperatures to allow us to test satellite components. For example, you can fit well, you could almost fit my house in, to be honest, but you fit a car easily and a satellite you can fit in to fully test all of the components and how they're going to um, uh, behave in this space environment to ensure it's going to be successful. Um, it's the type of thing that we don't really have in a university, that sort of large scale. Uh, and indeed, they do build satellites there. It was that the first solar powered satellite ever was uh, was built at Naval Research Lab and, and launched uh, there. Um, that's the Vanguard satellite. Um, and they continue to build them today. Um, but then that's alongside um, people working in materials development and nanoscience, um, things that you would maybe say are, are more familiar to us in, in the academic environment too. So it's this, um, uh, this bridge, I guess, between um, things that are um, 
uh, we'd say emerging science concepts with applied engineering and very application specific work um, that makes it a really rich environment, I think, for technology development. Yeah, you, you mentioned it was a very interdisciplinary community. Um, but yeah, I understand that there is a lot of uh, applied research there, like, like you said. So, so can you tell us a bit more about what you were doing um, as part of your postdoc? Yeah, certainly. So that was, um, uh, again, working in, in photovoltaics and power systems and um, uh, semiconductor materials for devices. Uh, developing novel alloys was one of the projects. Also looking at, at thin geometry cells for integration for, for space power applications as well. Um, so uh, it, it being involved in a few different projects, which would be quite common in that type of setting, actually, to be, you know, you'd be 50% on one project, 50% on another project, um, as well as looking for the next opportunity. Um, so uh, unlike an academic environment, you don't have uh, have a, a, a teaching uh, commitment. So it's a little bit different. It's, it's full-time research, um, which is good in some ways, but... Um, uh, does doesn't provide quite the the dynamic that we have in a new university with uh, with new people coming through and the kind of the the new ideas that that feeds and the group structure that we have at the moment where you may have um, some undergraduate projects some uh, master's students you may have PhD students postdocs uh, academics and then and then moving outwards from there it, that type of structure wasn't um, it was a much flatter structure I guess because we don't have the students. Now for a brief interlude from the interview, as we spotlight a news feature from the latest developments at the Cavendish this month. Now this month we're looking at 3D printed nanomagnets. Now this is technology that's been developed by an international collaboration led by researchers at the Cavendish Laboratory, and they're 3D printing magnets at a scale smaller than human hair. Now this novel scale creates helix structures that produce magnetic fields that cannot be created with straight wires, which one of the researchers describes as swirls in the magnetic field. And now these results have huge implications for magnetic devices, which are common in modern technologies, such as hard drives and RAM. Currently, the structure of these devices are two-dimensional and are reaching the density limit. Moving to three dimensions allows a greater density of storage and increased efficiency. Now, Claire Donnelly, the study's first author, who's from the Cavendish, but now at the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Physics of Solids, said that this was previously very difficult, as they needed to be able to make three-dimensional magnetic systems, and they also needed to understand the effect of going to three dimensions on both the magnetization and the magnetic field. Work focused on developing methods to visualize 3D magnetic structures, which Donnelly describes as like a CT scan in a hospital, but in this case, for magnets. Experiments at the Swiss light source using advanced X-ray imaging techniques revealed a twisted structure created by the interactions between magnetic fields of the nanomagnets. This helix structure is highly robust and has the potential as a carrier of information, as well as for particle trapping, imaging techniques, and applications in the development of new smart materials. The team's results are also exciting as they show a new route for patterning magnetic fields at the nanoscale. If you want to learn more, you can check out a link to the paper in the description of the podcast. And we're back with Louise Hurst telling us her experience as a researcher in physics. So, Louise, when we prepared this interview, you mentioned something that happened to you earlier in your career, an experiment that you were not allowed to do on your own. 
Can you tell us a bit more about that? How how did you address this kind of discriminatory policy? I wouldn't go as far as to say there was ever a discriminatory policy. Okay. Individual instances of discrimination did occur and they have occurred throughout my uh, career um, where individuals have behaved in certain ways and they do it for a number of reasons. It may be because you are dismissed as a woman a little bit and in some ways I would call that um, a um, an unintentional yet still damaging um, uh, a way in which you can be discriminated against. Um, and then there are policies, not policies, but um, behaviors where uh, people quite intentionally are, are trying to exclude you or set you aside. I suspect normally because they're wanting to push their own agenda and their own priorities and you're not part of that, or you're distracting from that, or you're taking away from that in terms of resources. And so they'll try and push you down any way they can. And the fact that you're a woman maybe makes it easier to do that. Um, Perhaps you're not as assertive as you might be, uh, and perhaps other people don't view you as having the same level of importance or the things that you're saying as being on the same level as 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 perhaps a man in the equivalent position. Um, and so it's it's easier for that to happen. Um, we we discussed earlier about the instance when I was not allowed to um, fit the transfer line to the helium duo. Um, the reasoning that was given was that I was too weak. Physically, physically too weak to do it. Um, I feel that like I had physically demonstrated doing it. And any um, woman physicist listening, or even man, is going to be rolling their eyes at this, being like, "Installing a transfer line? Come on, <laughs> you know." And if I had needed help physically doing that, that could have been a conversation. You know, well, perhaps we get someone to help you with that part of it, and then the rest of the time you can be carrying on with your with your experiment. Um, but instead, what was required was for me to be full-time supervised by a man, a non-specified man, um, any man. <laughs> mm. And that was the stipulation that was put on me operating in the lab at all, because I was deemed to be too physically weak for this process. So I suspect that that was a distraction, you know, uh, again, trying to make it as difficult as possible for me to get access to what I needed because I was a distraction, um, because these are very competitive environments and people want to push their own ideas and maybe they believe they're even doing the right thing by pushing their own ideas because they think they're the best and maybe they legitimately think that my ideas are not so good and I don't really have a problem with with the competition pushing the ideas and really pushing for what you think is the right thing but I think it, it can be easier to dismiss women in some ways and that was an instance where I was dismissed for, for, for an aspect of being feminine. <laughs> That was not based on reality. I did not believe it to be based on reality. Yeah. But so, just quickly, how how did you? What did you do to overcome these these kind of challenges that were coming in your way when they wouldn't maybe come in the way of other men? Yeah. What, what kind what, of traits did you have to develop to? What What would you tell um, a woman that? is in the same position as you were back then, How, what would you recommend her to, to behave like? It's a very difficult one because there's the, um, well, just play the game a bit, balance it, you know, and, and make your life easy, just go with the flow, which is one argument. And certainly that's what I did in that case. I found a man who was my peer, who was happy enough to 
play the game and just kind of sit there whilst I got on with my experiment, which seemed like a waste of his time a bit. But, you know, we liked each other and chatted and it was all good. And so but we really needed those results at that time. And I just didn't have the time in that moment to deal with what I was seeing was the bigger issue. And so we just got on with it, um, with the um, criteria that had been laid out to us. Um, but um, there are times when you've just got to stick up for yourself. You know, you can only push that so far. Um, and uh, definitely when in, in years gone by, I certainly would have tried to dodge the issue, tried to just kind of go along with it, I think. And, and in instances where actually sticking up for myself and saying, you know what, I, I don't think what you've said is correct. Or um, I feel that you didn't listen to what I said sufficiently there. Um, or that's my idea. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever it is, um, sticking up for yourself um, is important. And that actually goes for, for everyone. It's not just for women. And it, it could happen to anyone that they are overlooked in a, in a certain environment for a whole host of reasons. Um, and so it's important to be able to calmly and uh, in, in a professional manner assert yourself when you know you're right. So pick your battles and uh, um, be, I would say, rational, be calm and be assertive, especially. Yeah, exactly. But those are very, it's e easier said than done. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in 2017, I believe you decide to return to the UK and lend a very exciting joint role here at the Cavendish and Material Sciences. So what are you working on now? So uh, a host of different projects, actually. actually. That's one of the great things about Cambridge is it's interdisciplinarity and the opportunities to branch out beyond your uh, space where you're an expert and um, work in, in different fields. And so there's lots of different mechanisms by which we do that, which I absolutely love. And so I'm trying to, trying to actively exploit that as much as possible. Um, but our, our key focus, I guess my main line of research is a European um, Research Council funded project called GLIS, Gliding Epitaxy for Inorganic Space Power Sheets. So it's space applications and photovoltaics again. Catchy. <laughs> you got to have your acronym, exactly, <laughs> so people will remember it. But um, that's uh, looking at developing new materials for space applications. Um, very much from the material science basis. So um, looking at ways in which we can fabricate these materials, which um, allow us to do it uh, at a lower cost, allow, allow us to integrate with other systems more efficiently. One of the things we're looking at is the growth of materials like gallium arsenide on graphene as a, an alternate substrate. Um, but then taking it all the way through, so taking those materials that we synthesize and saying, let's make some devices, let's make those devices as efficient as possible, uh, and then finally, let's actually test them against um, uh, for space worthiness against real standards, so exposing them to radiation and then seeing how they, how they perform and how we might expect that to uh, affect the performance of a device on orbit. So starting from very fun more fundamental perspectives, through to a, an actual device. Yeah, you mentioned that there are a lot of translational themes in the research that you're doing, right? So going from the very basics, doing like the computational studies as well, and then going all the way to the applications. Yeah, absolutely. That's always been what's excited me, developing technologies. Um, and so that's uh, really where I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, focus my research. 
uh, it's a difficult thing to do because you need to sort of have a bit of expertise in a lot of things and then kind of know the right people to call on, I guess. So that that is the, the difficult aspect of it. But um, I think if we all just stay in our one little area, our one little silo, um, just the materials development, for example, um, it's going to be difficult to then allow that to have an impact later down the line. Um, so working actively to, to think about the materials development with a longer, long, much longer term end goal um, is, is the way that I focus my, my research. So speaking on translational themes, do you find that physics is changing nowadays? It's becoming more collaborative and, and, and less cutthroat in a sense? I would I would definitely say it's it's becoming well certainly more interdisciplinary and in that sense more collaborative. We have to be if we want to develop translational technology. Um, in the past, I think there probably has been a bit of a I've talked about the competitive environment of science, but yeah, competitive to the point of cutthroat and perhaps certain um, systems, for example, you'd be really pushing your system, your idea, um, and perhaps not acknowledging fully the benefits of the competitor, if you like. But instead, if you don't view yourself as competitors, if you view yourself as collaborators or potential collaborators uh, and kind of see the benefits of each side, uh, you could you could um, help each other out, if you like. And um, I mean, the classic thing is if you're, if you're looking at two, uh, two competitive technologies and one, one uh, person uh, is asked to peer review the work of the other, whether that's for a grant application or a publication, that they tear it apart, right? They're absolutely brutal about it because, of course, they know every little tiny little snag because they're right in that area. And not to say you shouldn't give a, a you know, a fully um, comprehensive review, but perhaps um, not tearing it apart in quite the same way and and giving constructive comments and whilst acknowledging the, the benefits um, I think is 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 a fair way to proceed because if you if you just are constantly tearing each other down, um, then people who are working in areas maybe further away from you, um, if they're working collaboratively and constructively together, saying okay, I see what you've done, that's good, but how about you incorporate my aspect and then maybe we could be even better together. Um, that that's going to actually uh, do better in the long run, and I think that it is changing. I think young people particularly and but actually it's not about age um the the people who i guess are at earlier career perhaps are are, are more keen to make those collaborative uh, connections just because they're in that career building stage yeah and you quickly mentioned it uh, earlier but cambridge the university and that joint appointment between material sciences and, and the cavendish kind of help that that environment and that's trans- collaboration and um, yeah so you mentioned um, I'm a joint appointment with material science and physics and at first that was a real baptism of fire because I had to learn about how the physics department runs how the materials department runs and actually the departments in Cambridge have their own structure and their own way of doing things they operate relatively independently under the umbrella of um, the university and then of course there's the colleges separately as well and the role that the role that they play um, particularly when it comes to students. Um, so there's lots of different entities within within the university that kind of interact, but they have their own internal structures. Um, and but, but because I was embedded or became embedded with a bit of work uh, in both departments, um, I was able to see the advantages, right? 
I knew about equipment that was there. I knew about funding opportunities that were there. I knew about uh, being able to say recommend a, a, um, a colleague to go and work with another colleague, for example, because I was able to make those connections, which I wouldn't have otherwise done if I if I hadn't have been actually fully embedded in the department. So, yeah, it was um, extremely useful in doing that. The other mechanism we have here are, are things like the uh, the CDTs, so the Centers for Doctoral Training. They are they operate in between departments. Well, the the, the grant is based in one department, but they um, will draw on academics uh, across many departments to bring in project opportunities, uh, for teaching opportunities. Um, and so they are great bridges, actually, for, for connecting dif different departments and for interdisciplinary work. And so finally, just to conclude, um, where do you see yourself in 10 years or 15 in the future? Yeah, so... Um, as a as an academic, there's there's so much going on, right? You've got a little bit of all sorts of different types of work. There's the research, um, there's all of the teaching, and within teaching, there's different types of teaching, whether it's laboratory, whether it's lecturing or supervising, and then there's all the, the outreach work as well, and and other types of service to the department and to and to science more generally. Um, so, I think there's plenty to keep me going for the next ten years, but um, uh, I would never say that I, you know, I'm. In fact, even now, I don't say I'm an academic. That's I'm a career academic. That's because I think such things don't really exist so much anymore. Um, I know I'm very interested in technology development, um, uh, but certainly since coming to Cambridge, I've really enjoyed the uh, the development uh, of my teaching skills and, and learning about becoming a better teacher, which I wasn't able to do at Naval Research Lab. Um, so uh, hopefully in 10 years, I'll be... Uh, um, launching a satellite that's got some of my technology on it, uh, but also uh, enjoying many of the other uh, rich opportunities that come with being a, a, an academic at Cambridge. Thank you very much, Louise, for your time uh, today and for being our guest on this first episode of our podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks to our guests, Louise Hurst and producer Chris, for this episode. The news today were brought to you by Simone and Jacob. If you want to learn more about what's being discussed in this episode, or why not want to join us or study with us at the Cavendish, go to our website, phy.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast. That's phy.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening in to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We would love to put your questions to our team of physicists so send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. You can also email us at podcast at phi.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. Bye.